All right, guys, we are live in five, four, three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Art of Move podcast with myself, Anthony Manuel, my good friend, Dr. William Raybar. We're still out here in the Canadian Rockies trying to find the grand unified theory of human movement biomechanics and what it means to live and be in a human body. Today, we are joined by someone who I've been really excited to talk to. If you have been paying attention to some of our more recent conversations, we started alluding to topics like exclusionary zone water. We've been talking about the viscoelastic properties of fascia and how it Im implicates our ability to use light as energy. We've been talking about electromagnetism. You may have seen me wearing these funky blue light blocking glasses because I started getting into the work of Dr. Jack Cruz a little bit and someone who I think interprets a lot of this information really, really well as our guest today, Carrie Bennett, who you can follow on Instagram as Carrie B Wellness, such an incredible informative page, but we're going to talk about everything from exclusionary zone water, electromagnetic fields, the implications of light on our health. We're going to talk about how easy water forms in our body and, and implicates a fascia, um, we're going to go all over the place and I don't want to say what we're going to talk about. Cause usually when we have these conversations, they go in wild and wacky way, uh, places that we don't even anticipate. So first of all, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us for today's conversation. We're so excited to talk to you. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks William. I'm really excited to chat with you too as well. So right off the get go for people who aren't familiar with your work, I know uh, my understanding of your story is that you were diagnosed with adrenal fatigue by an, uh, a naturopathic doctor, you experienced symptoms like chronic fatigue, insomnia, bloating, you had a, a bunch of health issues, but your blood tests were normal. Uh, on the outside, you looked perfectly healthy. Uh, but you're like, there's no way that this is actually normal. There's got to be something else. You got like, a, I think you said a master's degree in clinical nutrition, trying to solve your own problems. And eventually you came upon light as as sort of the the sort of defining factor that you hadn't considered yet. So that's my understanding of your story a little bit. Um, what did I leave out and what's important for people to know? And then how, like, tell, tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are now. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's a, that was a really great recap of my, my health journey. Um, I start, you know, I never thought I was going to be studying what we call applied quantum biology these days. Um, when I graduated from college, from undergrad, it was like I could be, I, I studied biology, so I could be a doctor. I, I could have gone to um, grad school. I had some grad school opportunities and I chose to become a massage therapist. Right. Yeah. And so my parents were like, oh, okay. Right. But like something was <laughs> calling me away from more of the traditional studying of the human body. And so I was like, sweet, like, let me, let me kind of see where this goes. My parents were like, get a job and put yourself through massage school and do your thing. Like, you know, we trust you. And the, I got the only job I knew at the time. I was a college athlete. So the only job I knew was to become a personal trainer. So I, I did personal training, Pilates. This was like in the era of Tybo and step aerobics and like, you name it, right? I taught it and um, I loved it. It was really cool because I got to still, you know, move and, and, and be physically active, which I love. Um, and, and massage therapy school gave me a completely different viewpoint of the body. It was this viewpoint of energy flow which, you know, I had to really wrap my brain around. And I was like, yeah, that's interesting. That's a very interesting esoteric way of understanding the body. I appreciate, you know, I appreciate that. But that's about as far as I went um, until I started developing my own health challenges. And so, you know, I, I had had some small health challenges all along. Like I suffer from this massive joint laxity. And so I, I know my connective tissue was really off all throughout high school and college. 
Um, and that I had insomnia, but when my first kid was born, that's where like shit hit the fan basically. And I was just like, wasn't willing to say, okay, this is as good as it gets. And so in my quest to heal myself. And at that time too, I was starting to get a reputation for just acquiring knowledge. So more and more complex clients came to me, not just like work. I want to take a Pilates class with her. It was like, wait, she knows some stuff. Um, but I didn't, right. I knew, I knew some stuff, but I didn't know enough to take care of my own body at the time. And so I, after even getting a master's degree in clinical nutrition and trying to apply all that, that's when like I was up one night being like, what am I missing? You know, what, there's got to be something else like that's so fundamental about human health that I have never heard of before. And that's when I stumbled on the work of Dr. Jack Cruz. And it was like, wait a second, this guy is talking about light and water and the intersection really between those two things as being fundamental to optimizing my health. So, you know, I mean, I love a good science deep dive. And so that's basically what I did. I dove into every one of his blogs and then, you know, in his blogs, he references researchers, dove into every one of those researchers and that I used it to heal myself, right? I started getting, optimizing my light environment. I understood how this exclusion zone water really operates in the body and how to optimize that. And I feel like I am like the thriving version of myself. I feel so much more youthful and energetic than I, than I did. This, this journey started about 11 years ago now, um, almost 12. And so it's, uh, it's just been a game changer. And so I thought to myself, when, when the pandemic shut down my gym, I used to, I used to own an actual physical commercial property that housed a gym. When the pandemic shut that down, I was like, might as well start teaching this, just putting this stuff out online and seeing if anyone finds it interesting. And sure enough, people do. And so my career has completely shifted to educating people about this because I think this does provide some interesting information that's really not broadly shared yet. So fundamentally, in terms of the new paradigm that you went into after you started studying some of the work of Dr. Jack Cruz, all these other researchers, what were some light bulb moments for you about how the body worked that you hadn't considered before? And how did it basically change your view of maybe bioenergetics as, as you looked at it prior? Yeah, two things really stand out with that. Number one is that we rely on signaling to optimize our function. And light cueing is the primary signal we use to sync something called our circadian rhythm, which drives all of our cellular tasks. It organizes and coordinates all of our cellular tasks. So that was number one. And then number two, to recognize the, that the body is electric in nature. I was very much brought up in a biochemical paradigm about the body. And instead I started to recognize that the body was about electrical flow from broader scales, for example, through the fascia, all the way to the small, small scale of electron flow through the mitochondria. And so really it was about how does elect how do electrons flow? How do we produce electricity and how can we optimize that? And those were the two light bulb moments for me. Is is there still a room for a biochemical model to coexist with uh, like an electrical model? Is there is it is one just like wildly more relevant than the other? And you should pay obviously a little bit more attention to the the bioelectrical model. But like how how much consideration do you put to the the biochemical model within in light of this new information? <laughs> um, yeah, you know biochemistry exists. There's no doubt that biochemistry is happening in the body. But you have to ask yourself, what animates the biochemistry? And what really is a biochemical reaction, except potentially the movement of things like electrons and protons throughout the system via chemicals, right? And so that even looking at biochemistry, you can break that down into more of a bioelectrical perspective. Nice. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. The, uh, 
the word quantum biology. <laughs> um, could you give a definition? Uh, I'm sure you know a lot of people use quantum in many different ways. Sure. Maybe the a definition of how you see quantum and quantum biology. Yeah, absolutely. So quantum biology was actually coined by two researchers, John Joe McFadden and Jamel Khalili. One was a biologist and one was a physicist. And they got together to say, wait, I see these kind of, um, you know, gaps in the research. And yeah, I see these gaps in the research. Maybe we can talk to each other and come up with like share some knowledge and see what's current, you know, and in particular, they were studying the migration patterns of birds and the signaling that happens. And they they were the first research team to prove that quantum biological processes were happening in living systems before their research came out, which was really, really, we're looking at about 10 to 15 years ago before their research came out. The word quantum was used in two different ways. It was used in the more of the woo-woo esoteric. And I say that with all, utmost respect for people who do that sort of energy healing. Um, but it was kind of given like the, oh yeah, quantum, that's like a little out there. And then the other way it was used is in a strict, the strict way we're talking about quantum mechanics or quantum physics, which was studied very much in a controlled environment. It was always in a vacuum or in a super cooled setting because the assumption was that quantum biological processes like electron tunneling couldn't, or, or, or proton tunneling couldn't be taking place in the warm, wet systems that we call the human body. Um, or any living creature for that matter. And uh, Al-Khalili and McFadden really broke that down to say, no, no, we're finding it happening in these birds. And then the research has just blown up from there. And so now we recognize that really those who are on their game in terms of what's happening in the human body from a quantum biology perspective are studying water in the body, its structure, its function, and its weight, and, and its ability actually to flow things like electrons and protons through the system to act as a communication and an, and an energy system for the body. Can we deep dive a little bit more into that? What you yeah. just said about the water and uh, how how that works? Because, you know, the regular person is just like, I, <laughs> I need some clean water source, right? I need some natural sure, spring water sure. and I'm good to go. Once it enters the body, how does... How does that get optimized in your opinion? Listen, that's the interesting, that's a great question. It very much is where I was coming from it. Like, okay, as long as I filter all the garbage out of my tap water, that's all that my body needs. But you have to recognize that the body, the water that we drink makes up a tiny, tiny percentage of the true water in our physical systems. So it really, it really is utilized to maintain blood volume appropriately, right? And that's, so that's key. But the water inside of our cells and the water that surrounds our cells called in the extracellular matrix is produced mainly by our mitochondria. So my, maybe people have heard of their mitochondria, the mitochondria, right? That's like the, I think whenever I, I used to teach college courses in this, in, uh, in nutrition. And whenever I would say, anyone tell me about the mitochondria? And they'd be like, the powerhouse of the cell. And I'd be like, why? It makes ATP. What else does it make? Crickets. Crickets. Crickets, right? And then someone would be like, well, the byproducts of, mm -hmm. of ATP production are also the production of water and carbon dioxide. And I said, can we maybe look into that a little bit deeper and recognize that is it possible that yes, ATP plays a role and it does, but we've really placed that on a pedestal of it does everything. It's the energy currency of the body when in actuality it plays a role in energy, in energy and bio, biochemical biological processes, but the way the water behaves in the body is actually more important. And so that means that when mitochondria are making water, 
could that be the most important thing that they're set to, they're meant to produce for us? And I am, I'm hell bent on, on that's the case because of all of the work I've done, both research and clinically to recognize that if we can keep those mitochondria making adequate amounts of water for us, then we can go into what that water does. But if we can maintain that, that is what defines health in my opinion. Mm. So in terms of how that implicates hydration, this is fascinating to me because I remember hearing a story about someone living with the Hadza tribe and he noticed it's like these guys are not doing anything related to what we would consider mainstream health practices, especially in terms of hydration. They'll spend a whole day on the savannah on the hunt and they might take like a scoop full of muddy water and then just keep going for miles and miles. And it's like, how are these guys not dying of dehydration? What's going on here? And obviously they're like naked in the sun basically all day and they're running through the, the savannah barefoot, getting maybe the electrons through the ground. But like in terms of how that, impl could that implicate how we hydrate ourselves independent of exogenous water consumption? It could, yeah. So I can explain that mechanism. And I can also explain why our assumption is uh, that they need the water to maintain energy or to maintain activity as opposed to electron flow and electron sources. Mm. So um, so first and foremost, what they're likely, they're likely extremely good utilizers of their stored fat. They, they, they have a good maintenance of fat, just enough to sustain what their needs are. And what that means is what we're meant to do in a, in a, a, a let's say 90 percent of the time we're meant to use fat as a fuel source and what is fat you know it get these the 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 are the arguments um on social media i stay i stay out of them in general but like the ones that really irritate me are like eat carbs eat fat it's like what do those all break down into they all become electrons so we're still talking about electrons and so uh the what the research shows is that when you break down fat the electrons from fat and the protons go to the mitochondria and they make four times as much intracellular water at step four of the electron transport chain than carbohydrates. So it's just a very sustainable way to maintain intracellular hydration um, without actually having to drink water. But modern living these days makes us sugar burners and it also disconnects us from the electricity sources, the free electricity, essentially free electrons we can get from nature, which they were also doing on that hunt. What were they doing? Number one, they were moving. When they moved, their body creates electricity all throughout their entire connective tissue network. And I'm certain you all ta have talked about that before. Mm. Number two, they're typically barefooted or they're using a natural leather hide or a natural hide as a foot covering. And Earth's, uh, you know, and, and people can, it's gonna say this is woo as heck, but Earth's surface is basically an infinite repository of electrons. It's just electron rich. And we can touch any bare skin to the Earth and pull Earth's electrons into us. And that can be seen in so many ways that we can go into at some point if you want. And then lastly, like you alluded to, they were under natural sunlight. What does sunlight do when it strikes our skin? It twofold. Number one, the cell, the intracellular water that's in our skin cells in and of itself, when the, it, 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 all that, all the water in our body, it, that's re, that's superficial uh, towards the surface. It's in this exclusion zone form. And we now know that when sunlight, specifically ultraviolet light strikes that exclusion zone water, it creates a plasma of free electrons. And it can go anywhere because this water is interconnected. And we'll dive into that in a second. But lastly, what happens is the melanin deposition in the skin, 
melanin has been shown by a researcher named Arturo Solis Herrera. He's been a lone wolf in this for a long time, but his research is beautiful. What he has shown is that when melanin is all, every molecule in the body is surrounded by water. When melanin, when sunlight hits melanin, it splits a water molecule. And that water molecule becomes an, basically molecular hydrogen and molecular oxygen. They are electron donors. So then again, you have another source of electron energy that he has estimated can fuel 90% of the needs of the body if used appropriately. So this is interesting because I, I uh, was on someone else's podcast recently. We started talking a little bit about easy water and, and this this absorption of um, you know of, of this free energy, right? And I want to get back on that term specifically, free energy that we can get from nature. I want to talk about that specifically a little bit more. But he he was a fascinating case because he moved, I think, to the Dominican Republic and didn't eat or drink for about thirty days, um, just basically getting in the ocean, grounding being in the sun naked as much as he could and he like no food no water for 30 days now he did lose a bunch of weight but he's like i had energy i was still running my business i was still good to go and he's like i couldn't have done that if i wasn't you know close to, <laughs> close to the uh, the hemisphere there but like um that's that's fascinating like 90 percent of your your energy needs being covered by something that is not in you know exogenous food exogenous nutrition necessarily and that, that idea that, you know, whether it's a carb or a fat, it breaks down into these electrons. That's something that like, that's, that's new information to me. Cause I've been a, nutri a nutrition guy for like the longest time. My background was also as a personal trainer. I lost a hundred pounds. That's how I got into this whole, this whole scene. Um, and I did it mostly through changing my nutrition for the most part. Now this is like a whole other universe to me because I am fascinated by, uh, I actually got into this work through the work of uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza when he started talking about the electromagnetic field produced around the heart. And I started looking into electromagnetism and how we produce a field. And that's, you know, obviously when you start looking into electromagnetism and the field and all these other things, you kind of like, oh, light implicates that, you know, electrons implicate that. And then you get, it's, it's a rabbit hole, as you know, right? Um, so can we dive a little bit into this idea of free energy available from nature um, and how we can practically apply that in our own lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in order to really have a grasp on that, let's, let's, let me go into kind of my explanation of exclusion zone water to yes, get please. people to understand how mm -hmm. that in and of itself is energy for us. And so most people think of the water in our bodies as the same as liquid water in a glass and it's not right. Liquid water in a glass, if we were to look at the water molecule itself, which is H2O, so you have an oxygen with two hydrogens attached to it. Those H2O molecules, the way they interact with other H2O molecules in liquid water, which is in, which is called, we call it bulk water in the research. Um, where the way, the way it interacts with other water molecules is it has hydrogen bonds. So it's going to bond with this one and then it's going to bond with that one and then this one, but it's very random. There's no rhyme or reason. So if I were to look at it under a molecular microscope, this water molecule would, might be here and then it might be here and then it might be here and then it might be all the way over here and then back here. So it's a very random structuring like or back basically no structuring of those water molecules. But what Dr. Gerald Pollack's lab, and he's the one who really um, made exclusion zone water popular. He coined the term exclusion zone water or easy water. Uh, 
but there's a whole host of other beautiful researchers who have dove into that as well. Um, he, what he found was that when you have a biological surface, a hydrophilic water-loving surface, which as the two of you know, that pretty much defines every surface inside of the body, right? Every membrane, every organelle, every cytoskeletal architecture, every extracellular matrix protein, they're all water loving. And so what Pollock's lab found was that when you have this biological hydrophilic surface and then you put water next to it and you look and you assess what that water looks like under a molecular microscope, you recognize that it's no longer just this random arrangement of H2Os kind of bouncing all over the place. And instead, the H's and the O's structure themselves into hexagons. And they form these sheets of hexagonal layers. And you have the oxygens at the vertices, the hydrogens in between. And then, you know, uh, Jerry, Jerry went a little bit further and he said, well, okay, what are we going to do? They're like, let's, let's characterize this. Let, let's see what's, what's going on with this. This is very unusual. And so what he did was he put like tiny little beads in the water first. So, you know, he sets up his biological surface. It's called Nafion in a test, in a Petri dish. He takes some, some bulk water, puts these little beads in it, and he pours the water into the, uh, the Petri dish and he waits a couple minutes and he finds that, wait a second, Wherever this biological surface is, the beads are never touching it. The beads can't physically penetrate close enough to ever touch the biological surface, which is why he called it an exclusion zone, because he found that he could get nothing beyond an electron to penetrate into that area. So anything basically bigger than the size of a proton or bigger was excluded from all biological surfaces. That tells you something right there, like, wait a second. Okay, so that also makes me, that's why I also don't put a whole heck of a lot of stock in biochemistry research because they, it almost always omits the water. The water was studied as an artifact as opposed to like an integral part. We now know that if there's ever a physical docking happening of an enzyme with a protein or protein with an enzyme or um, a hormone with a receptor, it's never a physical touching. It's only happening through the water network. The energy is exchanged through the water network there. And so he, he went on, he was like, okay, this is wild. There's an exclusion zone. What are the other properties of this exclusion zone? And so he said, okay, well, does it have a charge? Because liquid water in a glass, if we go back to chemistry, you know, high school chemistry, we would, we would ask, is there a balanced amount of electrons and protons, which are negatively charged and positively charged? And sure, yeah, you would find that in liquid water, it's neutral. It doesn't hold a charge. However, Dr. Pollock found that when you have this exclusion zone, it had a negative charge to it. He was like, wait a second. So what is happening as water organizes itself into these hexagonal sheets? What the heck is happening for water to all of a sudden take on a negative charge? And so they found then that in order to form these hexagonal sheets, the water had to kick out a proton, a hydrogen, a naked hydrogen, basically. And for those who don't know, hydrogen is the most basic element on the periodic table. It is just a proton in the nucleus and one, usually, typically one electron, right, around it. And so basically what the water did, they said, we're going to hold on to that electron as we form these hexagonal sheets. And then we'll kick out that, that basically naked uh, hydrogen atom, called, we call it a proton, and it formed a proton wire directly next to the exclusion zone. Hmm. And then as you got farther and farther away, biological surface, negatively charged exclusion zone, 
proton wire that's positively charged. Then if there was extra space, the water would drift into more of like the random liquid bulk water, like we might find in the interstitial space, like, you know, where the lymph there might be some flow, fluid flow happening, like in the, uh, with the lymphatic fluid. So he was like, wait a second. Is it possible that water is separating its charges negative to positive for a reason? And so he took a microelectrode and stuck it in the negatively charged exclusion zone, a microelectrode and took it into the positively charged proton wire, and he lit a light bulb. And he said, that's why batteries have a negative side and a positive side. You have to separate the charges for electrons to flow and to create electricity. And so and there, there's other, there's a lot of other things that I can go in. The fact that the water was structured in hexagons in and of itself, that turned the water into a state that's studied in physics called a liquid crystalline state. And it's like, it's like a liquid crystal that's doped with an extra electron. That means those extra electrons are freely mobile anywhere this water network is interconnected. And as we already described, if every biological surface has this exclusion zone around it, and this, the, all of our surfaces are interconnected via this exclusion zone water, that means we have an, a, a free source of electron flow happening all throughout our body that we can contribute to with things like earthing or piezoelectric, piezoelectricity, right? To the, the, the free electron generation basically goes to the exclusion zone water as a conduit of electricity all throughout the body. And so like once I started to put like realize these things in my brain, I was just like, why the hell was I never taught any of this? And how cool and like how huge is, is it to know this and just to understand it and try to help people realize this is a main source of energy. So that's why the, the Hazda tribe got it, right? They, they recognize that we have, they, they, they might, maybe they know this, maybe they don't, but naturally they realize that they had a network throughout their body where they could get energy from nature, free energy, electrons from the surface of the earth, sunlight creating free electrons in the body. It could all get disseminated wherever it needed to go via this conduit that we call exclusion zone water. So we were talking about piezoelectricity yesterday and we were talking about it in the context of bones and I can see that they're crystalline. Um, but this is news to me, uh, crystalline structures on the, you know, between surfaces and we're talking fascia, right? We're talking on the, like in between and um, the outside of fascia in muscle, like where are we talking it's a great that question. is happening? Is it within the blood as well? Or is that a different type of water? It is in the blood as yeah. well. But so, okay. I mean, blood is a connective tissue. So like the word yeah. I'm going to use is connective tissue. And the researcher who really connected all these dots for me uh, is a biophysicist named, named James Oshman. And what he termed, he termed something called the living matrix. So he was big into fascia for a long time. But what he recognized was that we separate our terminology for this fabric that basically is a unifying fabric of the body. It's just when it gets smaller to smaller and smaller scales, we give it a different name. And so we basically assume that it's a different substance. But what we can maybe feel as fascia in uh, like along our IT band or in our low back, what we recognize are these broad areas of fascia. Actually, when it gets to the surrounding the cells as the extracellular matrix, that is still the same contiguous connective tissue that has the exclusion zone around it. 
And a researcher in the 80s, Mark Brescher, found that actually there's proteins that penetrate from the outside of the cell to the inside of the cell. There's bridges, transmembrane proteins, which is where the fascial connections from the outside of the cell can go into the cell and become the cytoskeleton. And then into the nucleus of the cell where it's the nuclear matrix. And as, as you guys do, like, these are not static structures. They're remodeling all the time in response to, to movement, to different inputs. Um, but the, it's not just the fibers. It's the water that surround them then that is also moving and changing and remodeling itself and can redistribute electrons. So is fascia remodeling a chance to redistribute electrons where they might be needed? Like, is that part of it through this exclusion zone, this exclusion zone water? Um, I'm beginning to realize that it, a lot of things come down to like, huh, could this be it? Like, could this be really, really integral in understanding how all of our disciplines can contribute to human health? But we've kind of got, done it in silos, you know, oh, we're, you're burning calories. Oh, you know, um, you're, you're, you're optimizing your posture. That's a beautiful thing. But how then all of a sudden people have health change, like game changing health experiences. How? Are they optimizing electron flow throughout this entire tissue? And James Oshman calls it the living matrix. And he 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 and then a Nobel Prize winner before him that he shared a lab with, Albert St. Georgie, basically recognized that the body is about the movement of electrons and the donating of electrons to the system. And when that gets depleted, health gets depleted. And when that gets restored, health is restored. Will, I see yeah. the gears turning. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 definitely. <laughs> definitely. Much? I'm, I'm just, much. no, 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 it's not too much at all. I'm, I'm right in your, your zone. First off, uh, I'm going back to school. I'm flashing back to school, learning the electron transport chain a million times and yeah. uh, hearing about the water spitting out in the last, uh, um, what is it called? Last protein. Yeah, I believe it's four. Yeah, four. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and just thinking nothing of it and going straight into the, uh, what would I would thought was the juice, the ATP. We all need to learn how many ATPs come out of here, right? Now it was it was water the whole time. Water but the uh, whole time. so when you get older, you start to dehydrate. Uh, yeah. you know, visibly even, right? Yeah. So um is this this kind of seems like the key to me here to keep hydration between layers and allowing electrons and electricity to flow between the layers. Am I onto something there? You are 100% onto something. Um, a researcher he might like to dive into, his name is uh, Kirch, Kirch, uh, Gary Kirch, or Greg, I forget, G. Kirch is what all the research articles are. Um, but what he, and here's the another annoying thing about studying this, they're called different things, like, you, like we know, in different lines of work. He is specifically studying tissue flexibility um, and what he considers, so he considers the appropriate amount of tissue flexibility he's found to be associated with healthy tissues, and he calls it bound water. And what he found is that when one loses bound water in throughout the connective tissue in particular that he's studying, that cor correlates with tissue stiffness. And then ultimately, then you could see it as a precursor to different diseases. And so my brain is like, oh, if we're if we lose water in aging and if as we age, we traditionally get a little stiffer and stiffer. And when we're completely dead, we form rigor mortis. Could it be that we are just losing the ability to maintain the appropriate hydration levels and that we're losing the, the flexibility that we once had, but that comes at a consequence of also losing cellular electrical communication happening at that level as well. So with that in mind, how, what, what are practices that you would have to reduce that gradual dehydration? 
like lifestyle, yeah. practical. I'm, I'm a very, so I'm not, I'm not university educated. I am the guy who reads all the blogs and listens to the podcast and then tries to translate things into practical layman's terms. That's my role on this Love podcast it. as the, the, the least educated person on any of these shows. Um, so <laughs> in terms of practical application, when, when the rubber meets the road, it's like, okay, you're getting older. You know that uh, sunlight now acts as this signal. You can get free electrons from the ground by earthing. You're taking your shoes off. You're spending time on the ground. Uh, we didn't even dive into non-native EMFs yet, which I really want to get into as well. That's, well, yeah. uh, that's some juice there too. Um, but practically, how are you reducing this rate of dehydration in your tissues as you age? And how do you maintain that electrical conductivity in your system? Yeah, you got to look at a couple of different things with that, right? And so there are some great practical applications to this. You have to ask yourself, number one, are my little mitochondrial factories pumping out water efficiently? So there's a whole host of ways we can support the mitochondria. That's where I look to for, for sure. The other place that I look to is the fact that Pollock's research also showed that when he created this exclusion zone, this biological surface, this exclusion zone, and it had these, this, this little part that was excluded that had these little tiny beads in it, he, ha he actually had a research student who was just kind of playing around. And there was this light bulb that was typically off that this research student was like, what happens if I shine a light at this, you know? And, he, you know, so he's shown a light and it was like, it was an incandescent bulb and he's shown this light at this petri dish and then he walked away and he came back and he found that the exclusion zone had expanded fourfold and he thought to himself i think i think about something i think about something. so he they, they replicated it so many times and so we now know that there's a certain wavelength range of light that actually can maintain this exclusion zone water conduit throughout the body so why is that an issue these days? Why are people kind of maybe getting depleted in this? Or why are we seeing disease progress faster and faster or earlier and earlier? That's because we have decided to remove all sources of infrared from our modern living environment. We used to have, you know, I'm old enough, like we had incandescent bulbs. I don't know how many times as a kid I accidentally burned my fingers on them because it was like, oh, yeah, ooh, ouch, yeah, oops. Um, and so that is a source of infrared heat. If you go further back than that, what did we have? We had campfire that was, was keeping us warm at night. Um, and then, then beyond the window or beyond the, uh, the lighting that's shifted, that's, that's re basically removed all the infrared to make an energy efficient bulb, modern window glass has done the same. Modern window glass has said, well, ultraviolet is damaging to, to human health, so we might as well completely block that using glass. And oh, by the way, we wanna make it really easy to maintain internal temperature in someone's house or office space or wherever. So we might as well put on these films that also prevent the infrared from entering the space as well so we can maintain a constant temperature. So while if I were to, so the difference between me being inside right now with closed windows versus if I step outside, sunlight, regardless of when it's there, it could be a cloudy day, it could even be a snowy day, right? It could be cold, because not all infrared we feel is heat. But the sunlight always contains approximately 50% of its rays as infrared wavelengths. And so being inside, we're just basically not never charging this water battery up because our, our internal environment is lacking the energy source, the infrared that's needed to do so. But then you guys would appreciate this, right? Because what about exercise? Like what's the, what's, what's, what's kind of like, how does exercise tie into this? Well, my brain goes to, well, when I exercise, A, I force my mitochondria to make more water for me and B, I make heat. I generate my own infrared heat. I get hot. So could exercise simply be another way to reestablish water levels and exclusion zone water in the body? 
it's something that I'm considering as a potential means of one of the benefits of regular exercise. I, I think that would be almost intuitive um, <laughs> on, a, on a practical end. Okay. So let's say right now I lay on a PMEF mat. I have a, what are they called? Uh, tuning forks. I tuning fork daily, uh, take hot baths. I don't know if that's a, a temperature thing that you would recommend. Infrared. Um, that's infrared. Yes. Okay. And uh, I'm getting a structured water device. I get water from a spring. What else could I do on the practical end from all those sure. things I listed? Something <sighs> practical I can do that Go, just off the top of your head. Go lay outside naked for a little bit or as many, you know, in as much clothing as you can take off, right? And just yeah. allow those wavelengths to touch your skin and charge the battery that way. Touch bare skin to the earth because you you can essentially increase the electron flow happening through this conduit by conducting Earth's electrons into you. Um, sound is a great way to do it. Frankly, like, so I took a whole bunch of continuing education from a really amazing sound researcher, John Stuart Reed. And what I never realized was that as sound, sound travels through different mediums, right? Sound has to travel through a medium. In air, it travels because it causes molecular collisions in the, in the molecules here. It can travel through my body, through the different um, mediums of my body. And when sound passes its vibrations onto another molecule to propagate, it makes infrared. It produces infrared. So sound hmm. is another way. Like, I think that's a, a mechanism for sound healing is why sound healing can be so profound. Because sound healing imparts what we would call coherent energy, coherent um, information to the body, and also produces infrared. As opposed to something like the noise pollution that we now know can create mitochondrial dysfunction, such a jarring noise. Anytime you have anything that creates mitochondrial dysfunction will impair the electron flow and so impair the ability to make water at step four. So you hmm. can kind of start to see, okay, what am I doing that are sources of infrared? Where am I, where am I gathering free electrons from either via movement or touching uh, my skin to the, to the earth? And then what am I doing that might be destroying the integrity of my mitochondria and their ability to make water for me? And if you can support those pillars, you can go a long way to supporting your health. So let's talk a little bit about the factors that disrupt that mitochondrial ability to produce energy, right? You mentioned that loud, loud environmental or ambient noises can, can disrupt that. What are some other factors that people are maybe exposed to every day that they almost normalize in their life? You know, for yeah. example, non-native EMFs. Non-native EMF and blue light, both of those, right? Mm. Okay. Where do you want to start? Non-native EMFs or blue light? Because the mechanisms are different. Okay, well, let's start with blue light because I do have a few probing questions about that that I'd like to get into. Sure. So blue light beyond like just com completely disrupting our circadian rhythm and kind of tanking our ability to get good quality sleep. Um, blue light, actually, we know that those photonic wavelengths can literally plug up step four, can literally block or, or cause a... Um, uh, deactivation or a change in the functionality of step four of the electron transport chain. And so whereas blue wavelengths inhibited the production of water there, red wavelengths allowed the water to flow back through. And when you go outside and you recognize in nature, there's always this balance of red and blue, this give and take. And so like there's there's always a potential to have some blue, but then to balance it out with the red. Um, in, in an interior environment these days, again, the red is omitted. If I take my little uh, light meter called a spectrometer and I hold it up to any light bulb, 
I will never find any red wavelengths because they're they, they're energy demanding. And so we're basically in this concentrated blue lit environment that has the potential to continuously impair um, electron flow and the production of water at step four. Is that something that is principally like obviously you're wearing the blue light blocking glasses, the, the yellow filtered glasses, right? And so that's that's a signal that happens through your eyes. Um, are there any considerations for blue light making contact with your skin? Someone who I was recently a, a guest on their podcast, he was like, you know, I'm always like naked in my in my house because, you know, I want to get out in the sun. But then I thought maybe I should be wearing a hoodie inside because that could protect me from the blue light absorption through my skin. Is blue light absorption through the skin a consideration? Yeah, it's la it's not necessarily absorption through the skin, but we have signaling through the skin. Mm. So the eyes and the skin contain the same blue light sensors. They're receptors called melanopsin receptors, and they're super concentrated in the eyes. But we still have them all throughout the, the, the skin to the uh, to the layers that blue light can penetrate and activate them. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. If we can we can get that chaotic signaling or that destructive signaling happening through the skin as well. So we're designed to be covered indoors and naked outside, basically. And I think we do the exact opposite these days. That's interesting because that was one thing that I noticed um, when I travel and I'm staying at a and b like an eye mask doesn't exactly help if you if you have you know if i'm staying in a city and there's this like blinking ambient street light coming in through the windows cuz they don't have blackout curtains i'm like i can't sleep for the life of me right or my sleep is disturbed in some sure. capacity compared to you know we live out here in the mountains and so that's not as much of an issue for us sure um but so it's it's actually photoreceptors in the skin that create that signaling even if you have the eye mask even if you're trying to protect yourself in that sense it's not yeah. going to help because you have the photoreceptors in the skin you know the eyes are i i would say the eyes are the most important thing to protect but you're absolutely right there is a ton of disruption that can happen simply from that light leaking in because of the skin receptors as well mm. So that's, is that's... there ever a time, so, sorry, Anthony, no, no, go ahead, go ahead, please, please, please. is there ever a time where you wear sunglasses, let's say midday, or is it always naked eye um, with a hat, let's say, or squint? What, what do you do there? I don't squint anymore. I used to because I was so <laughs> yeah. sensitive. Um, but uh, the only time I've ever recommended sunglasses for anyone is if they're on the water sailing or something like that, or on the slopes, because you get this mm -hmm. something called the albedo effect. It's actually this reflection of the light really can change the way it penetrates or gets to the eyes. And that can be damaging long-term, right? You, that can, you can mm -hmm. get excessive light that way. But if I'm just out and about naked eyes all day long. Cool. Yeah. So that's, that's the blue light side of the equation. Let's talk a little bit about the non-native EMF side of the equation. Uh, those are that's an interesting one. Um, so non-native EMFs, uh, in, they both impact the exclusion zone water itself and also the function of the mitochondria. So it's kind of a double whammy there. Mm. And the way that what what Pollock's lab showed now for the life of me, I've, I've screenshotted this article, but for the life of me, I cannot find it if I go to Google. Um, so so if anyone wants to fact check this, uh, it's not there. It's been removed, right? It's been removed. <laughs> Um, but his lab showed that you can get a decrease of exclusion zone water by 15 to 20% when exposed to Wi-Fi style radiation. And so um, basically, what does that mean? It means that instead of having this fourfold expansion like we get with the infrared exposure, you're starting off with just the normal amount of exclusion zone that he got, that he gets in an interior lighting environment, a normal lighting environment. And then you, you have a laptop computer, I believe is what he used, the laptop computer next to it, it shrinks the exclusion zone. 
So what's happening to us these days is we're indoors, no infrared, surrounded by all of these wireless radiation sources. We're massively depleting this exclusion zone, which means we're, we're losing electricity. We're losing electrical capacity and this ability to flow this electrical, uh, this electrical conduit essentially throughout the whole body. And so in and of itself, it impairs the exclusion zone a, a little bit. I, I would imagine that if you were to study the intense amount of radiation we have these days on so many different factors, it would be even worse than that, than what his, what his research showed. But beyond that, the mitochondria are highly, highly susceptible to non-native electromagnetic fields because of the fact that um, a researcher, Martin Paul, his work showed that in response to these non-native EMFs, there's these, there are these uh, ion channels, these voltage-gated calcium channels on the cell membrane. And that uh, we want, they're, they're great to have, right? Because what do they do? This, uh, when calcium enters the cell, it's a, creates, a, it's called a second messenger. It creates a cascading signaling effect. So a little bit of calcium comes in, it activates this pathway. A little bit of calcium comes in, it activates that pathway. But when those ion channels are open all the time, which is what happens in response to non-native EMF exposure, when massive amounts of calcium flood the cell, that will very quickly change the voltage of the cell. That, that would be the, because calcium is a, what's called a plus two cation. It's got a big positive charge associated with it. And we want the interior of the cell to be negatively charged. And so the, the body, the, the cell says, oh crap, what's going on? Step one, the one particular part of the cell called the ER, the endoplasmic reticula, says, okay, we got to get this calcium out. Uh-oh, like shit's hitting the fan. We got to get this calcium out. And then the mitochondria, if because it, it just the flood keeps happening, the floodgates are open, the mitochondria are like, wait a second, okay, let me go. And so the mitochondria also can start to sequester the calcium, but that basically impairs them from their primary function, which is electron flow to create water and ATP. And so it creates what Dr. Robert Navio, who does... Who, who he's a functional medicine doctor. I, I like him a lot. Um, he's not necessarily, I think he's starting to get into the biophysics of this, but it creates what's called the cell danger response. And the cell danger response basically is like the cell being like, waving the flag, somebody come help us because like we're, we're not able to sustain this capacity anymore. And so that's where you get like this ultimate cellular dehydration. And then you, you basically don't have enough energy in the cell to run all of the tasks. And when that happens, the cell starts to get dysfunctional. You accumulate so many dysfunctional cells in a tissue that that tissue becomes damaged and then disease starts to manifest as, as disease symptoms start to display themselves. Wow. Yeah, that is a different look than, <laughs> than how people usually look at this, right? So um, practicality, turn off Wi-Fi, airplane mode. Uh, what do you do if you're in a city and you're just bombarded with EMFs? Is there something you can do to to kind of mitigate everything? This, well, this don't, is be a concern. don't be afraid, right? Don't be afraid because yeah. fear in and of itself is super damaging to the body. Yeah. Um, but number two is like, I, I the <clears throat> impact of non-ionizing or non-native EMFs, the impact of how biologically damaging it is, works on a property called the inverse square law, which basically means the closer this it is to my physical body, the more potential it has to cause harm. So I tell like, take out the AirPods, take off the Apple Watch, uh, put your, don't hold us, keep a cell phone in your pocket all day long, unless it is on airplane mode, or even then it's questionable if it's emitting radiation or not. Um, my workstation, I switched from completely wireless. Everything is hardwired, you know, and then I took it the next step. Like I got this ugly looking ethernet cable right here. Right. But 
when I take my EMF meter to this and make measurements, it's very low. So I feel happy about that. So yeah, could I, could I walk that way a mile and be like run directly into a cell phone tower? I absolutely could, but I want to make sure I can take care of what's in, what I can control. And what I can control is what's on my physical body and in my workspace. And so I tell people to start there and then also sleep space. Like you alluded to the sleep space does matter. So if you can turn off your Wi-Fi, it matters. Don't sleep with your cell phone next to your head. When I was teaching college courses, the number of college students who would tell me they would just fall asleep with their cell phone under their pillow, basically, was astronomical. And so put that thing in another room, turn it off completely, put it on airplane mode, put it far away from you. Uh, and then, you know, are there other things you can do to mitigate? Yeah, there are. You know, you can get a little bit more extreme with it. But I think those go a long way in supporting these processes. So I'd love to touch on something that you said almost in passing about how fear is damaging to the system. And I kind of want to talk about your perspective on the role of consciousness and conscious states of being in terms of how it can affect your your bioelectrical relationship, right? Because obviously fear creates a chemical response. There's like higher cortisol, norepinephrine and all those other things. And it's obviously very damaging on your system if you're just chronically living in fear. What is your take on like, you know, I almost get to a woo-woo state of it because like I said, I'm I'm very into the work of Dr. Joe Dispenza and I and I, I go into those kind of weird places and I've experienced some very, very bizarre things that I'll withhold from talking about on this podcast. But what's your take on in terms of your state of mind and your state of consciousness on your ability to kind of use and even influence this electromagnetic state in your body? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And I believe that I personally feel that the impact of our emotions is influencing all of the water in our body. Um, and specifically though, the liquid water, the truly fluid water in our body. So I would say it's really impacting the water in the blood, the water in the lymphatic system, and the water in the cerebrospinal fluid. And I don't know if you've dove into, um, a, I'm drawing a blank on the researcher's name, but he is big into like kind of connecting the science of the cerebrospinal fluid with the woo, loving his work. But why would that matter? Why would our emotions impact the liquid water? Well, it really is this also along the lines of this principle of homeopathy or the fact that water is an antenna for every frequency in the environment. Can I dive into that? Like, please. are you ready to go there? Yes, please. Yes, I'm so ready to go there. <laughs> so like, so let me highlight a couple of things that I think will help people connect some dots. Number one, there is this, there is this really um, uh, long-standing modality called homeopathy. Well, what the heck is homeopathy? But the uh, serial dilution of a substance until it's the substance, physical substance itself is no longer in the water. Yet somehow, if I were to consume just the water that had had that physical substance, I can still have a physiological response to it. That tells you that water has the potential to store memory as a storage capacity. Well, back to that that idea of wait, how does water do that? You go back to this that when I talk back about like the liquid bulk water in a glass. And when I said when you look at it under a molecular microscope, it has no rhyme or reason. However, we now know that some of it has no rhyme or reason. But if we were to kind of sort through the different pockets of liquid water, you realize that the water takes on what are called micro clusters or little tiny geometrical structures of their own. And that they feel like those structures and how that structure is created is uh, is uh, and, and like the bond in the bond angles and things like that. That's how water can store 
memory or store information. Mm. And that, that, then that information then can, uh, we can, can is basically in the system for, and it's, it's there forever. So that being said, okay. So if, if I, and like, if you want to, you can look into the work of Masaru Emoto. He's the one who said happy things to water and found these, you know, happy crystals versus ugly things to water and found ugly crystals. Veda Austin, she's a cool mm -hmm. person to talk to. She's done a lot on water crystallography as well in response as water being responsive to different emotional states and images and things like that. Um, but where if you're if you're going to go there, if you're going to recognize that, wait a second, water has potentially this capacity to store frequency memory, then that means that the true liquid water parts of my body then would be responsive as well. So is it possible that the way I feel when I'm positive and in this state of gratitude and love and appreciation and joy, is it possible that it's because the water in my body is holding that frequency and that frequency is always being pumped either up and down the, the, the spinal canal, right through, up, you know, to, uh, through the ventricles of the brain as the CSF and being pumped through my entire blood vessel system, you know, as, as part of that, the distribution there, am I basically distributing feelings as, the, as a water structure, a water structure frequency throughout, throughout the system. I think it explains why um, we have almost, we can have instantaneous responses in changes in gene expression in response to emotions. It can't be the, the whole, okay, we gotta, we gotta transcribe this, blah, blah, blah. It's like the biochemical paradigm is too slow to explain the speed. It has to be something else. And when water hold is, takes on a specific geometric pattern, Anything with a specific geometry, just like different tuning forks, like a different shaped tuning forks emit different frequencies, those geometric patterns are frequencies. And then that frequency is felt throughout the entire network. And then also for people who understand biofield science, it contributes to like this big data in the biofield that continuously creates is this toroidal flow that goes into us and around us. Hence why we can be in the same room with people and feel their vibes as well, because we're sharing that frequency information. This is so refreshing <laughs> to be honest, like the, uh, the biochemical models everywhere. It's like, you got to check this level. You got to check this level. It's always like, I'm, I'm so frustrated with it. And I'm like, it's all, well, I shouldn't say it's all, but what you're describing here, it's, uh, vibrations, frequency. I love the Tesla quote, right? Frequency vibration. Yeah. Um, and I think cymatics is really the proof an easy proof to see that okay the water structures into these beautiful geometric patterns with this frequency and not with this frequency and then you connected the you know the thought process to the water and it it's really much more simple in nature right and even yeah. the gene expression to me i have the sneaking suspicion genes are really more frequency related than structural right so 100%. yeah no i'm loving what you're saying here um yeah, I, I kind of let's lost go my... back. You, you gloss yeah. on cymatics, but I think sure. I really want people to, to dive into that because that John's course, John's work is brilliant. And for people who don't know, right, what what Doctor what John Stuart Reed showed was you get this uh, little petri dish. He calls them a cuvette of water, and he vibrates them at, at different uh, frequencies. Sometimes it's the sound of someone's voice singing. Sometimes it's a bee, the sound of a bee's wings buzzing, and by shining light on the top on the top of this petri dish that's vibrating, you can capture how the water uh, organizes itself, and it forms what are called standing waves. And so, anyone who's experienced a wave pool 
actually will know what a standing wave is. It's this idea that you can kind of slosh the water a certain way. And at some point you build up this really big, um, like sinking up of the waves and you get this big trough, like this big peak and then a trough and peak and then a trough kind of all in the same position. That's what's happening with the frequency. The frequencies are creating standing waves in the water and it organizes the water into like what you call different, different beautiful patterns or geometries. I encourage anyone to look at it and really study that because it's such cool work. But what his research also did, and this kind of takes it a step further, was he said, okay, if, if the sound and if even intention has the ability to do this to water, what is it about these, these frequencies? What is it? Is it electromagnetic in nature? He wanted to kind of weed out the electromagnetic aspect of it. And so he studied the viability of red blood cells, which, you know, if anyone has, has done, looked into blood research, the, the red blood cells are going to die over uh, in a very predictable time course, right? They're not just going to live indefinitely. And so he took one of those vials of red blood cells and he put it, it was just in a, uh, um, a Faraday cage basically to block all electromagnetic frequencies. And the other one he put just in, in the open. And so he thought he said to himself, a Faraday cage is going to block all, all EMFs. So if, if I get a change in the red blood cells, if the red blood cells can stay living or stay thriving or viable for longer, a frequency that is not electromagnetic must be impacting those red blood cells. And he likely said it must be the water because it's a lot of a lot of water in the blood. And so that's what he did, right? They had this intention experiment set up where they had about a thousand people sending healing intention to both this one and this one. And they found that even though the healing intention did work for this one to, uh, compared to the traditional time course that, that they would die. This one like was off the charts too, super like rich and full. And it was in the Faraday cage. It was shielded from all other energies, which means that what's impacting the body goes beyond the electromagnetic spectrum to the woo-woo realm of what we could call the ether or like what ancient civilizations have known for forever, the Akashic record, um, you know, uh, chi, right? Key, prana, like there's a subtle energy quality uh, that that's being affected when we talk about emotions and intention. And it's, and it's, it's all through the interaction of the water. The water is the ultimate antenna for that frequency information and can respond accordingly. Well, this is interesting, Will, because you and I have had a few discussions on previous episodes about, well, what's this whole idea of emotions being trapped in the body? Where is it actually stored? Where do you actually store this? And it sounds like water is the vector for that. It sounds like the the crystal. Now, the, yeah. the the interesting thing would be like, there's obviously turnover of water in your body. So that even if these crystalline structures are, are kind of there informing the the memory of an emotion and the memory can you, you you must be able to consciously reprogram these structures you must be able to change them in some fundamental way over time you absolutely can absolutely so there's different ways you can do that and you know um i think this documentary is still around i think it's actually called the memory of water uh it goes into two researchers who i love on this topic um one of them is luke montagnier and, and then the other one is rustam roy and what Roy was really big on showing was that he believes that when water kind of clusters itself and store and stores a memory, that you actually see that it's not the water molecules that stay the same. It's not the same water molecules all the time. When one leaves that hydrogen bonding network, another one comes in and takes its direct place. So you can have water molecules changing position, but the structure remains the same. 
And so how does the body potentially then store that? Well, I, I really believe that there's a couple of ways, but I do believe the fascial system uh, and, and specifically the water around the fascial system is a huge area where that can take place. And that's because of the fact that that water there, uh, if, if anyone has recognized it I, as a massage therapist, I have felt so many times where I was helped, where I held a knot or a really dense adhered area of fascia. And all of a sudden it would soften and my finger would sink in and this client would have some sort of an emotional response because sometimes it's laughter or joy or crying or like this triggering of a traumatic memory. And it was just, it was interesting. It's like, what, what's going on there? That's fascinating. Well, I believe what's happening is that when we, when the fascia can, uh, when the cells of the fascia are continuously compressed, the, the, there's little cells in them, the fascia sites called, uh, that they, they produce hyaluronic acid. So those fascia sites produce this substance that pulls on fresh water. So essentially, if there was a memory just stored as a frequency, right? Cause that frequency can be there even without the water too. You all of a sudden you get this frequency that just stays in that fascial system. But all of a sudden, if you can bring fresh water into it, that water almost animates it. And when that, when that water animates that, that frequency again, it gives it a medium through which it can conduct, can, can conduct its frequency and the body can process it. It can really release the trauma or at least move the trauma. And so what, when you study water that way, and also where, when you study how trauma is held in the biofield, um, that's Eileen McCusick's work, you recognize that it's not about the not having the trauma, it's about its ability to move and flow through the system. And when it gets stuck in a certain area of the biofield or it gets stuck in a certain area of the body, that's where it's jarring resonance. It's, it's creating a jarring resonance that I think can disrupt the whole entire system. Um, and when you get it moving again, it's no longer in one location and just creating this kind of chaotic signal. Yeah, that's, I mean, on the, the manifestation on the outside where most people come in, cause I'm a, I'm a chiropractor, uh, and I see this all the time. Right. And that's more, I'm in pain or the energy stuck. I can't move this area. And over a period of time you do see mechanically, it does get stuck and, and the energy flow, you can watch somebody walk and it seems very robotic linear. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of just tying both together in my own head here, right? Like how, how both work together, the structured water, the memory, and seeing somebody manifested in reality, right? So yeah, that's, that's very interesting thought. I'm going to have to stew on that for a, for a little while. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. It's, um, I, I, one of the things, so, um, one of the practitioners who I, who really has kind of blown my mind in terms of manipulating the fascia and the different types of changes, both emotionally and physically, um, is Naudi Aguilar, right? I think for functional patterns, I really feel like his work is showing that when you do rehydrate the fascia by doing things like myofascial release, and then kind of make sure you're in, you make sure you're optimizing biomechanics and, you know, the flow of the electrons through the system you can get some amazing changes happening simply from that that ability to rehydrate the tissue and 
be bio be biomechanically in alignment like be, be efficient if you will so it's it's interesting to see that there are like you can come at this from the modality of a movement practitioner or you can you can come at this from the modality of what i would call myself would be a, a you know a, a clinician and an educator of applied quantum biology and you can get similar healing results or you can come at it from the joe dispenza e type stuff because there's profound, even spontaneous healing that can happen at his seminars. And, you know, and it's like, wait a second, but I, I truly think it's just optimizing this water that can make all the difference. Yeah, Anthony, we were talking about this the other day where we were mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, somebody who's in the movement field would be like, it's movement, that's the key, or biomechanics. Yeah. And then somebody in the light field would be like, it's light, or, you know, somebody in the sound field, it's sound, but you know, it's, we're one body and we got to integrate it all. And, uh, exactly. yeah, no, this is, this is definitely a missing piece in most people's arsenal, a huge missing piece because nutrition is really nutrition and biochemistry have really taken over as the, <laughs> the primary thing. Right. So if that's not the key, then a lot of people are missing out. So this is yeah. fantastic. What I love about this stuff here is like, you know, William, you're a chiropractor, right? So it's like, it's not like chiropractic care doesn't have any benefits, it has massive benefits. But now you're a chiropractor and you can maybe take like this viewpoint of human physiology and say, oh, I got these tools in my toolbox to optimize it this way. And maybe I'm going to have that conversation about them taking off their AirPods and their Apple Watch. And maybe I'm going to tell them to go get barefoot in nature some more. Like you can layer on modalities that are all, all have healing purposes. But just kind of when we recognize that there might there might be a unifying factor throughout the whole entire system. And if we can support it in with the tools we have in our toolbox, then I think that that's just going to make us all better practitioners. If, uh, if you don't mind, I'd love to pivot real quick to just almost like a rapid fire, practical, short question format of a, sure. of a few different practical things. Um, one thing that's fascinating is that light, light is this powerful signal and we have all these photoreceptors in our skin. Uh, a question that came to my mind, especially since I just got a huge one on my leg, is do tattoos implicate the signaling of light in our bodies? Does it affect it in a negative way? Tattoos can have certain effects. Um, it, it's an artificial, right, pigment that's not necessarily artificial, but some, oftentimes artificial and just non-native pigmentation. So yeah, that can affect the ability to receive light there. Um, you also have some inks, not a lot these days, but some inks have metals and some are still also have microplastics. So those can act as almost an, at like as an interference field. So I don't know if you're familiar with that, that term and like, it's a more in bioregulatory medicine, but they recognize scars because mm. scar tissue, and that's what you're creating with a tattoo micro scar tissue. That scar tissue, when it lays down its tracks, as you know, it's not in the beautiful helical patterns and 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 linear patterns that you see with with healthy connective tissue. It's really very much a more disorganized pattern and more dehydrated. It's definitely a dehydrated tissue. So, are you creating then a block of of flow and communication through that area of the body because of that? Because of a because of a tattoo or because of a scar? Now, in clinical practice, I have not seen tattoos be impactful, but I have really seen certain scars I think be impactful and when we can reestablish healthy healthy urofascia and hydration around the scar like a c-section scar or a gallbladder or an appendix scar if we can reestablish healthy um, hydration in there and healthy connective tissue you're essentially um, removing a roadblock for the flow of electrons and protons for that matter mm. um 
I'd love to dive in. Thank you for answering that, by the way. Um, quick question about morning light and evening light. You were talking about the the, the potential of the the signaling effect of light. And I think an, an 80-20 that I've heard mentioned a couple of times is morning light and evening light. Is there an optimal window for you to get this light? And if so, like what's what's your what's the best practice, like best case scenario for an 80-20 in terms of the signaling of morning and evening light? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, I'm not going to pretend to think that we have studied light enough to know every what every single frequency does in every single moment of the day. But just based on my 15 or so years of clinical experience here is that when we get outside in the morning, the sequential layering and changing of the frequencies of light in the morning appear to be key triggering methods to optimize different pathways in the body. And so what I mean by that is, right, light through a prism, full rainbow, but that full rainbow in, and then the stuff that we also can't see, the infrared and the ultraviolet, it doesn't stay static all day long. At sunrise, you're not going to have as much, or before sunrise, you're not going to have as much blue. It's going to be way more dominated by the red and the infrared. And then when at sunrise, if you use that little meter, that, that light meter I was talking about, you get this, this blue all of a sudden peaks and the peak matches the red. That is a signal to the hypothalamus and this clock in my brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus that tells time for me. That's a signal there to start my day. And what does it do? It kicks off pathways like the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis to make cortisol. The hypothalamus pituitary thyroid axis, the ovarian axis, there's there's a lot of communication happening with that hypothalamus. And, and, and that first signal is that appearance of blue light. And so what happens then you have to ask yourself, right? What happens if my first thing that I do is I wake up and I just stare at a cell phone screen that is this huge, intense shock of blue light to the system. Well, it, it fast forwards your body to the middle of the afternoon because blue light is not that intense at the start of the day. And then you see the sun gets higher in the sky and all of a sudden you get the appearance of the ultraviolet spectrum. That window of time when ultraviolet appears, it's called ultraviolet A, between ultraviolet A and ultraviolet B, that actually impacts and, and, and balances so many different uh, neurotransmitter pathways in the, in the body. And we don't have to go into the nitty gritty details unless you want to, but if you're looking to optimize things like dopamine and serotonin, if you're looking to optimize your focus, your thyroid, your levels of inflammation, your libido, your ability to burn body fat, being outside during that window of time is so, so key. And that's all before the sun gets high enough for you to even start to make vitamin D through your skin, which then mm. has a benefit anytime you can get in that window. So I would say front load your natural light. If you can go ahead and start your morning off with a little hit of sunrise, maybe a longer walk when the sun's higher and you have that UVA light there, that's going to be by far more biologically impactful than, you know, ending work at four and then staying outside until sunset. It just doesn't have the same clinical impact as morning light. Mm, okay. And then in terms of like sunset, does sunset also give you uh, certain signals and should you be outside for sunset as well? You can be outside for sunset. It's the one that I think you can hack. And I don't think you can hack a whole heck of a lot, but basically when the sun goes below the horizon, my, those sensors for blue light, those melanopsin receptors are no longer triggered. So for all intents and purposes, I can no longer sense blue light in my environment via those receptors, which means that 
if I go inside then and flip on every light bulb in my house or watch that football game late into the night or stare at my phone scrolling late at night, I actually start to get a suppression of melatonin, which we want to have elevated into the evening and, and then at night. And then I get a secondary surge of cortisol, which is going to give you in a clinical perspective, you're going to hear, oh, but I get a second wind at like eight or nine o'clock at night and I can't go to sleep. Or uh, you have lots of people who are dealing with hormone imbalances. Well, guess what? That pathway that surges cortisol could also surge uh, in, in an imbalanced way estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. So you're going to get an imbalanced hormone profile that then we know can drive a whole host of health conditions. Um, but it's a symptom. That's a symptom of our light environment. It's not that we have to like inject testosterone into our bodies. It's we, we have to optimize the signaling and things fall back into place. Mm. And then in terms of actual artificial red light and infrared light therapies, like I have a big thousand dollar home red light therapy unit that I started using. Are we for that or are we against that? Or is there an optimal time to use that? Should we be careful of the timing of when we use that? What's your take on red light therapies? Red light therapy is one of the most useful tools that someone can have on hand because of how much it offsets the blue light toxicity that we get living indoors these days and how much it supports mitochondrial health and mitochondrial water production. Plus those wavelengths of infrared, the near infrared wavelengths on those panels, while not the best way to charge that exclusion zone water battery, it's more of the far infrared that does that, it'll still do that. It'll still be supportive of our entire exclusion zone network. So I'm a huge fan of red light therapy. The only hesitation that I, that I ever have is if someone tells me they're doing it right before bed, because mm. that's still a very bright light. And not only are we responsive to the colors of light, but when our pupils dilate or constrict, that's another signal as to the timing of day for us. And so all of a sudden you may have had your pupils dilating a little bit more because it's dimmer and you have a darkened interior space. And then you stand right in front of this red light therapy panel and your pupils are like, what? What time of day is it? Um, but other than that, I love red light therapy. Cool. What about uh, PMEF? Have you looked into that in terms of uh, water or uh, light? I, that's not, yeah. it's not my modality that I've looked into a ton. Now I've okay. had one client in locally, right? And it was the game changer for him in terms of how much it supported his healing journey. And he had been on a long chronic uh, illness journey. Um, and so I think that it can have a therapeutic application, but just like any other device, I think you just have to be aware of how to use it, the appropriate dosage, when to use it. You know, I mean, there is, there is a little bit of a dose response curve you can even get with red light therapy. Like, you know, if, if you're going to tell me, if Anthony was going to tell me, uh, yeah, I stand in front of that thing for seven hours a day, right? Like, you know, I'm like, th that actually is probably well beyond the dose response curve and you could actually start to cause more harm than good. And so I think if you are just work within those parameters and, it, and also subjectively, if it feels good to you, I'm a big fan of you want your modalities that you feel are supportive, like you think are supportive to actually feel supportive to you as well. Absolutely. And then yeah. in terms of home lighting situations, you know, like you're, you're talking about these high efficiency bulbs that do, should we switch to incandescent bulbs? Should we consider, you know, something that isn't overhead? Like what's, what's a home lighting solution that you recommend to your, your patients? If you can find incandescent bulbs, we're designed to see light that's created from what are called 
thermal sources, heat, right? Heat-based sources. So candle or a torch or the sun, right? So we're, we're meant to see light that way. And so I am still a big fan of incandescent bulbs, but the small little decorative ones that are of a dimmer wattage and at table height, because our melanopsin receptors in our eyes are most triggered by the sun. They're, they're at the back bottoms of our eyes, right? So they're the most triggered when light is overhead. So we're like switch out, like turn off all your overhead bulbs after sunset. If you need to turn on a couple of these little incandescent table level bulbs, if you can, and then call it good and try to make your space dim. And then I still, I mean, I'll definitely, you know, um, pop on my, my blue blockers. Right. So this, I put these on at what I would call between sunset and nightfall. And there's an app called the circadian app. If anyone's interested in figuring out when those times are in your location, you can program your location for that. And then I just protect my eyes it, and I'm still living modern life. Like we'll do family movie night. I love watching sports, you know, with the family at night. Um, I just am smart about it. Mm. And then from your perspective, how does nutrition play a role in all of this? Do you think that nutrition is less consequential if you take care of all these factors? Or do you think there are certain nutritional uh, considerations people need to do in order to optimize the effects of these practices? Well, I think first and foremost, you cannot be eating a nutrition profile that increases inflammation because what is inflammation? Inflammation in the body is basically electrons that need a pair. It, it's, a, it's a lost electron. Electrons like to exist as a pair. And so if, you, if, in, if you're eating stuff that's driving up these inflammatory cascades in the body, it means that you're requiring an even bigger electron demand on a daily basis. So it's a calm that inflammation. So that in and of itself can just be depleting of your of our electrical systems. Next, you also have to ask yourself, okay, what's the most important thing I'm getting from food? Well, I think I also think it's electrons, right? So, you know, I mean, what could that look like? Everyone's different, but I'm of the opinion that we were designed to consume and digest and get the nutrients from the food in our environment that's local and seasonal, if at all possible. So like, the amount of energy and and and, and um, light buried on a banana or a tropical fruit would not be smart for me to eat all the time in Michigan in the middle of winter because it wouldn't have grown there. So I, I frankly, what happens? Like actually, in the middle of winter, I'm, there's going to be food scarcity. I'd likely have like this deer that I hunted, and that's what a large portion of what I ate. You know, maybe I made some broth associated with that. Maybe I have some a couple of root vegetables in the cellar. Um, but that being said, so. I think there's a reason why, if you look at the research, cold, darkness, scarcity, all of those things impact this pathway for longevity called the AMPK pathway, right? Mm. And so it's like, if we can eat according to our season, we're naturally going to optimize certain pathways in gene expression when we do it that way. So, I mean, food's important, um, but I don't think it's actually as important as people make it out to believe when it's like, I got to count my macros. I got to count, mm. you know, I got to get my, I got to get this much uh, fat or this much protein, or I can't go over this amount of carbs on a daily basis. It's just in the long term, I don't think that that's a really realistic or sustainable way. And I don't think it's necessary. I've seen people focus on their nutrition last in my clinical practice and optimize all these other things and be perfectly healthy, thriving, beautiful individuals. And, and so do you like, it's interesting because obviously plants and food contain photosynthetic information. Um, and when you're talking about eating out of season, eating from another place, this, the, you, you think the light energy from that area is stored within the food. Do you think that affects our circadian signaling as well? 
it, it, it affects the mitochondria for sure. Because mm. the, 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 based on the amount of light energy, so electrons interact with photons, right? Photons of light. So as food grows, it's basically gathering light into its electrons that are all a part of its, the, 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 the plant or the animal or whatever's growing. And then, so as we eat that food, we're breaking the electrons down. And those electrons, based on how they were programmed with the amount of intense light or lack of intense light that they have, those electrons actually enter the electron transport chain in two different places. Mm. If we, if it's a carbohydrate, it enters at, at cytochrome one or step one of the electron transport chain. If it's more, if it's a fat-based electron, because that actually has less light buried on it, it enters at cytochrome two. And so why does that matter? Well, electrons only like to jump so far or tunnel through this electron transport chain so far. And so the spacing of these steps of these respiratory proteins really matters. And our modern living environment, actually, we uh, uh, mitochondrial dysfunction is just an increase in the spacing of these proteins, even very, very small, but we're more likely to lose electrons. And so what's going to happen if we if we are eating a lot of carbs out of season and we've got this spread electrons are not going to want to be able to jump from step to step. So we're way more likely to lose electrons if they have to jump four steps to make it to the end point and create water than if they enter at step two and have to jump three steps. So it's just, it's just kind of a little basic math equation there as well. It's like, so it makes sense. And when we do enter them at step one in the middle of summer, what do we have in our environment? We've got exclusion zone water. We've got our bare skin touching the earth. We've got electrons to essentially calm the extra inflammation that's happening from these lost electrons because these lost electrons become reactive oxygen species, reactive nitrogen species. They can damage the membranes and create these, these inflammatory cascades. So that, I mean, my, my take on food is way, way different than I think um, so the typical cool. discussion these days. That's, that's why I wanted to ask because I, I have been so bored of the typical discussions of nutrition. It's all the same thing repeated in different ways. And this is the first actual novel interpretation of how nutrition works in the body that I've, that I've been able to discuss. My, my personal last question is, have you ever used or recommended methylene blue uh, as a supplement? And if so, why? And what are its implications in terms of your relationship with light? Absolutely. I have used it and I have recommended it. Definitely. Um, there are a couple of caveats for recommending, you know, um, while I believe that it can still be safely used with the majority of the population, people who are on things like SSRIs have to talk with their physician. Although sadly, likely their physician will be like, what the hell is methylene blue? <laughs> um, and then also, um, the people who have something called a G6PD deficiency, which is part of like the energy metabolism pathway. Um, but that being said, yeah, I've used it. And why is methylene blue important? Well, methylene blue was traditionally in every emergency bag, whether it was in, in with an ambulance or in an emergency room, because it can act as a surrogate protein in the electron transport chain. So for example, cyanide poisoning, what does cyanide poisoning do? It blocks electron flow through the mitochondrial electron transport chain and you die. What does carbon monoxide poisoning do? It does the same thing. It slows and eventually blocks electron flow and you die. Methylene blue can really quickly, especially when it's delivered like via hospital methods of injections or intravenously, it can quickly go to the mitochondria and it acts as a brand new protein and you can maintain electron flow even in broken mitochondria. And mm. so it really is. So if you, you can, it's been used for those recovery purposes, but then think about it. That's high, that's high dose, extreme emergency use. 
what I've done in, with my clients and myself is use smaller doses, but, but still very, very therapeutic. I'm talking five to 10 milligrams of methylene blue. Um, and, and, you know, you can max out at half a milligram per kilogram of body weight. So you can go up really high if you want to, but I've seen therapeutic effects within, let's say five to 20 milligrams. Um, and so that way, what happens is methylene blue will stabilize the proteins. And if methylene blue can stabilize the proteins, it means that my mitochondria are by definition able to make water better. And if I sit, it has a synergistic effect with red light. And so if I go outside in the sunlight and utilize methylene blue and or stand in front of a red light therapy panel and have utilized methylene blue, I actually allow that that red light facilitates more water production at step four and more ATP production, which is step five. And so I've stabilized my mitochondria and now I'm reestablishing all of this water, which as we know, then goes on and becomes this exclusion zone water and does all these beautiful things for us. It's amazing. I have one more quick question. Um, sure. Do you use a structured water device? If so, which one? And uh, yeah, do you recommend a certain I've tried, one? I've tried everything. Like, listen, um, yeah. I, uh, so guess what the best structured water device is? Nature. Nature. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Great answer. And or human intention, right? Like using like express. I think there was a reason why every single civilization and or, you know, uh, religious practice expresses gratitude before a meal. It's yeah. Gratitude's beautiful. But I think gratitude also can change the water quality of the, the food that we're consuming. And we know it can change water that we drink as well. So if as I, I tell people, try to get the crap out of your water. So purify it, filter it the best you can. And then I think minerals are important. Minerals really are these, they, they form their own little exclusion zones. They really are the spark plugs of the body. Everyone's concerned with vitamin status. Minerals are key. And so I like to have people remineralize their water if they can, even as something as what's called a sole, which is basically really just concentrated salt uh, dissolved in water. So sea salt dissolved in water. You add a couple drops to the, the water that you drink. And then have I tried the Analemma wand? Yes. Have I tried Vortexers? Yes. Have I tried the Mayu Swirl? Yes. Have I tried uh, the whole house structurizers or the under the sink ones from all these different companies? Yes. And I think they all do a great job, frankly. I don't think that there's one that I would say is, oh my gosh, this is so far superior. I say, what I tell people like, what, what resonates with you? Is it being like, thank you water? Or is it like swirling the Analemma wand? Whatever works for you is perfectly fine. Amazing. Very cool. Well, Carrie, this has been one of the more in-depth, fascinating episodes of this podcast I think we've had the pleasure of doing. So I'd like to personally thank you for being so, first of all, well-versed in what you do and so articulate in, in the way that you describe things, not just from a technical standpoint, but in a way that's digestible. Um, guys, if you're listening to this podcast on YouTube and you have questions about anything that Carrie said, please leave a comment and we'll we'll try to clarify and we'll, we'll reach out. And um, yeah, just thank you so much for everything that you taught us today. I, I feel like I learned so much and you've just uh, inspired me to dive deeper down the rabbit hole than I've already been. Uh, thank you guys. This has been just such a great conversation. And I, I, I really hope that this also inspires other people to just be like, wait a second, let's do, let's do some more research on this. And uh, that's how I got started in this and I haven't stopped. So I really appreciated this conversation. And where, where can we find more of your work? 
Where's where's your best stuff? Sure. So like my hub is on Instagram in terms of posting about this stuff stuff pretty much every single day. Um, so that's Carrie B Wellness. I also have a website, CarrieBWellness.com, where you can go and see the courses. You know, I've taught quantum connective tissue and mitochondrial healing and um, a hydration masterclass and all these different courses. Um, so you can find out all of my work there. And I also have a private community if anyone wants to be a part of it, where we kind of have like, we have three and a half hours every week where we just talk and you ask questions and we kind of have these fun little conversations like this. So I'm excited for anyone who wants to join any of those. Well, and after having this conversation for free, I think it's well worth the price of admission guys. Like go mm -hmm. check that out. That's really, really phenomenal. I think this is information that everyone should be kind of getting into. So Carrie, once again, I'd, I'd love to just thank you so much for this. This was a, an absolute pleasure and guys thank you so much for listening to the art of move podcast if you're watching on youtube please like subscribe leave a comment you can also send us a message on instagram my name is anthony.manuel m-a-n-u-e-l-e -E, and will is at the art of move if you're listening on spotify leaving a little review and rating always helps that old algorithm and obviously we want people to get this information it's super super good carrie once again thank you so much thank and we'll you. catch you guys next time on the art of move podcast have a good one guys